Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us this morning to remember and proclaim yet again the death and resurrection of your Son. We ask that as your word is preached this morning, that your spirit, he would be here, he would be active, and he would impart life to us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we gather today uh, to celebrate Easter. And every year we are bombarded with the idea that Easter really is, in its origin, uh, a pagan holiday co-opted by us uh, colonialist Christians. Is that true? Well, no, not if you know history really at all. Now, of course, there's a, there's a lot of debate around the title Easter. It's an odd term, and if you look into it, historians can't agree for them, among themselves as to where the, the label Easter came from. Did it come from a reference to a Roman god or goddess? Probably not. If you know the early Christians, they didn't want to bring in any of paganism into their faith. Some will even argue that it was later on that that word came about through some Saxon or German goddess over the spring. And there is a little bit of, of evidence that that might be where the term Easter came from, but it involves a lot of guessing and conjecture. There's also some evidence out there that the word Easter is simply a transliteration of an old Teutonic word that means resurrection. I think that's probably where the term Easter came from. The very word itself was used as a celebration of Christ and his resurrection. In fact, if you go back uh, to the very next generation after the apostles in that first century, the followers of Christ, we have writings where they were talking among one another as to what was the exact date we should be celebrating the resurrection of Christ. So right there, that next generation of believers, we have them talking about celebrating what we now call Easter. So no, this was not some co-opting of a pagan religion. The celebration uh, for the church of Easter is not pagan at all. It is not rooted in any blending of different religions. The early church built it off of Christ's death and resurrection, which of course came in fulfillment, as Phil told us, of the Passover. Now if you notice in the Christian tradition, there are, there are still some debate over what date should we celebrate Easter. The Eastern and Western traditions of the church have different days that they celebrate Easter. To me, the date doesn't really matter. It is that we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. So let's get back to the question. Why do we celebrate Easter in the first place? It is because it is the day that the church has held that Christ rose from the dead. 
And yes, our society has added silly things like candy and Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and making money to this holiday. But really, if you stop to think about it, if that is why we celebrate Easter, it's really kind of absurd. I'm going to celebrate bunny rabbits and eggs and things like that. That is just something we do to, well, like I said, make money. As Christians, we must not lose sight of what we are here to celebrate. The shattering of the chains of sin and death. What makes Easter such a joyous occasion? Why for 2,000 years has this been the holiday? I know some of you may prefer Christmas over Easter, but for the church, this holiday has always been the preeminent holiday. The resurrection of our Lord. Why again is this a big deal? Perhaps we can answer that question with another question. Ask yourself this. Am I a good person? Am I a good person? Any person with any amount of self-reflection should ask themselves that question on a, a regular basis. And by asking that question, I do not mean that we should answer it, either yes or no, by some middle-class American or Minnesotan passive-aggressive notion of what it means to be a good person. We all like to think that we are good people. We all like to view that we are the hero of our own story. Everybody else out there is the villain, and I am never the villain. And yet, if we're honest, there are still those moments of nagging doubt. Well, guilt will creep in, and then we will press those feelings down and try to find some way to justify ourselves. Why do we do that? Why is it that every time somebody comes to you and says, Levi, you did something wrong, that your knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, I didn't, and let me explain to you why I wasn't wrong. It's because you live in a moral universe. You know deep down there's a standard. You suppress it from time to time, but we have this need as humans to not only demand justice when we've been wrong, but also to feel righteous. To feel like I'm not the bad guy. We feel that pressing need all the time. And so we create rules. We create standards. We create societal norms so that we can measure ourselves and feel good about ourselves. We have a whole term now that we call virtue signaling. That I can do something to signal to the rest of society that I am good and I am righteous. I'm clean. I'm not like those people over there. Didn't you see how I updated my social media profile? I'm good. I'm on the right side. Am I a good person? Am I the good guy? Or, or am I the self-deluded bad guy who justifies everything that he does? That is a serious question. And one that the death of, and resurrection of Christ addresses for us head on. And again, I think all of us should ponder that question. Seriously. You watch movies. You experience uh, terrible people in life. You will notice that the bad guy never thinks they're the bad guy. Everyone's got an excuse. The biblical answer to the question, am I a good person, is actually quite easy. It's a clear and resounding no. I'm not. Now, I want to be very careful here. God created you and me and every human that has ever walked to this earth in his own image. In his image, he created them male and female. And this means that every person who has ever lived has an inherent worth and value and yes, even an inherent 
goodness. What do I mean by that? Well, they reflect the image of God who is the highest good. But ever since sin entered into the world, we have all been infected with it. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. Sin contaminates everything. And so no one, whether they grew up in a Christian home or not, no matter their beliefs, abilities, ethnicity, or whatever, is a good person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's kind of where Peter starts us here today. In verse 17, he wants us to consider the judgment of God. 17 reads, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Christians have this unique privilege that like Christ, who referred to God the Father as his Father, we get to refer to him as Father. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, we read, our, we are to pray, Our Father in heaven. And just as Christ addressed him as Father, we are to call him Father. But, even that should not lead you or me to believe that God will judge you by some different standard. God judges impartially, without special treatment, without without regarding who a person is. So you may call yourself a Christian, you may even be a Christian, but hear this, God's standards for right and wrong remain unchanged. Quite literally, God does not care who you are, what identities you have placed upon yourself. His moral standards remain the same, unchanged. White, black, male, female, young, old, American, Mexican, Republican, Democrat, culture doesn't matter to God. You won't get special standing. The rules will not change because of who you are. His rules are fixed. And so our Peter here is saying, don't expect special treatment. Our God will judge even Christians impartially. So unlike our modern obsession with identity politics, with playing the victim, God quite literally doesn't care. Unless you're using it wrongly, then he's going to judge you for it. He doesn't care. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And this reality exists And Peter reminds us that God's judgment, therefore, hangs over everyone of the human race. God will judge everyone impartially. Now, I want to extrapolate that just just a little bit. To judge impartially means to not judge according to a person's face. Literally, that's how you translate it. Not according to who the person is. And this means that if you insist on enacting partial judgment or favoritism type judgment, you are in direct opposition to God and to the faith. Let me say that again. If you promote partial judgment, if you promote judgment based upon who a person is, you are in direct opposition to the creator God of the universe. It is anti-justice, it is anti-God, and it is anti-the gospel. This is why Christians must, as a matter of first importance, reject the old racism that led to Jim Crow and race-based slavery, and Christians must, at the same first order of importance, reject the new racism of woke university professors in Christian denominations. If we are going to judge people by the color of their skin, you will be damned for it. God is impartial in how he judges. When it's Christian schools, universities, 
churches and denominations bring this in, they should read 1 Peter chapter 1. God is impartial in how he judges. You don't get to change the rules. If you have a problem with that, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with 1 Peter 1. God will, it says, judge you not for who you are, but according to your deeds. He won't judge you based upon who you are, but according to your deeds. These deeds, as explained by Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, include not just physical deeds, but also your thinking. Every thought and every deed will be brought into judgment. Every lustful thought, every anger thought will be judged by God. As we left off last week, we were commanded to be holy, holy, holy as the Lord is holy. Why is this necessary? Because God will judge. So have you ever lied? You're guilty. Have you ever had a vengeful thought? You're guilty. Have you ever had a lustful thought? You're guilty again. Have you ever hated a person unjustly? Sorry, you're guilty. I'm guilty. Have you ever coveted what someone else has? Maybe it's their marriage, their spouse, the goods that they have, their job, their car, their house, their looks, their kids, their car, maybe for the kids, their toy that they have. Have you ever coveted that? You're guilty. And God will not let you off just because you call him Father. That's quite literally what Peter's point is here. You can call God Father, but he's still going to judge you the same. He will not let you off because of who your family is. He will not let you off because you've done other good deeds. He will not let you off because you are carrying around some victim card that excuses everything you've done. It doesn't work. And here's the thing. Deep down, you know that's true. I don't have to convince you of that. Your conscience testifies to that again. Some of you right now are getting fidgety. You, you want to say, but, 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 but. I've got a but for this, Levi. Why do you have that there? Because you feel the need to be righteous and your conscience is convicting you. You want to find some way to cover it. But your passionate plea reveals only a deeper truth. You're trying to convince yourself, not me and not God, that everything's okay. So again, try it next time. Next time someone comes to you and says, Levi, John, Bob, whatever your name is, you're wrong. What you did was wrong. Try not responding with a justification. Just give it a try. Push that boiling response down. See if you can do it. And its mere existence, again, tells you that you feel this need to be holy. I want to you need to consider this as well. An age that denies that truth exists, an age that denies that morality or right and wrong exist, but then goes around demanding justice, is not only hypocritical and oxymoronic, it's also in danger of getting the very thing it's asking for. Justice from God. You may get justice when you ask for it, but it will come from the impartial hand of God who is three times holy. And he's not buying what you're selling. The striking part of the warning of the judgment here is that it's directed primarily at the church and at Christians. Verse 17 continues, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time 
of your exile. If you remember back to the opening of this book, we are referred to as elect exiles. Exiles are Christians. So this warning is given to the church. God is an impartial judge. Therefore, in your exile, Christians, you need to live rightly with fear, knowing that God is not going to take it easy on you just because you're a Christian. Really, that should sink in very deeply this morning. God is not going to change his standard of judgment just because you're a Christian. Wrong is still wrong. So we must remember, this was written to Christians who were suffering persecution. And so the message is clear here about fear. Peter wants them, and he wants us, to fear God more than man. As they're being persecuted, they might have this temptation to do something that is wrong so that they can presume upon the grace of God because they're fearing what man might do to them. And Peter says, that's not a good excuse. You need to fear God's judgment more than you fear the judgment of man. You must never presume upon the grace of God. To put it another way, God expects you to live your life a certain way. And that way is marked by obedience to the Father, one that shows that you fear him more than man, one that says to the world, bring the worst that you've got, I'm still going to do the right thing, no matter the cost. That is the mark of a Christian living in exile. They fear God more than man. So why should we live this way? Why should we live this way? Besides the fear of the Lord, besides the judgment that hangs over us, Peter gives us more reason why we should live this way. Listen to verses 18 and 19. So, live this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What motivates your new way of life? Not gaining salvation through obedience, Not gaining salvation through doing more good works than bad. Impossible. What motivates this new way of life is looking and seeing the work of Christ. So brothers and sisters, you are to know that you have been ransomed from a futile way of living into a new and better way of living. Okay, We've recounted this again and again. The other ways of life offered to you today never deliver upon their promises. They are destructive to the core. Every sociological study you can look at will show you that our society is falling apart. It's depressed and anxious at an alarming and unprecedented rate. Why? Because it's been sold a bill of goods that will never work. It's a futile way of living. But you have been ransomed from that old way of living, and you are now free from it. What does it mean to be ransomed? Well, we generally think of ransoming, we think of like a kidnap movie, somebody takes your kid and sends you a ransom note and says, give me $50,000 and I'll give you your kid back. And the loved one tries to get that $50,000 and sends it uh, to the criminal. But in biblical terms, ransom was not really used that way. A ransom was a legal debt. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament law, quite literally, if you did certain crimes, you incurred a debt. And someone had to pay a ransom. You or a loved one had to pay a ransom for the debts that accrued. You can take this a step further. In the ancient world, slavery was much different than it was in the American context. It was not steal people from one continent and bring them to a new one. 
More often than not, people entered into slavery from their own will. They got themselves into a debt that they could not pay, and then they would sell themselves into slavery, and eventually, to get free from that slavery, they had to pay the ransom. A family member or someone would come along, pay their debt, and then they would be free. And this is supposed to be a picture of our slavery to sin, our former way of living before Christ. We were bound, imprisoned, and the fee was one we could not pay. Peter reminds us that Christ himself paid the ransom fee. He took the legal debts assigned to us for our sins, and he took it upon himself, and he paid it. For we are ransomed, or bought, he says, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We sang a song this morning, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus you ever stop and ask yourself this question, why are Christians so obsessed with blood? You think about it, am I going to take a bath in, in, in blood? How is this going to be washed away? What, what are we talking about here? Is there magical power within blood? Do we need to repeat some sort of incantation so that we can be washed clean from it? No. Again, in the Bible, blood is a reference to the power of one's life. It is their life force. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood represents a person or an animal's life. It is blood that pays for sin because it represents a life. A life pays for your sins. Because the wages of sin is death. It requires a life. When we sing about the blood of Christ, we're singing about his life was given for us. We still use the word blood that way today. If I walk up to somebody and I say, you have blood on your hands, I'm not referring to some sort of paper cut on their finger. It's not a literal statement. It's that you are guilty of murder. You have innocent blood on your hands. There's a moral culpability for what you have done. And so the focus on the blood of Christ is merely saying that Christ gave up his life for us. He spent his life force for us. There is power in the blood because of the blood belongs to Jesus. The blood is precious because it belongs to God the Son. It is worth more than silver or gold. Thus, you and I are called to live rightly because the precious blood of the eternal God the Son was shed For you. That's the message of Easter. Christ died for you. The blood was spilled for you. He ransomed you. Therefore, follow him. This leads us to the perfections of Christ. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is the God-man from eternity past. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. He added to himself a human nature to live a perfect life, and to die a perfect death. As I've said to you before, God himself cannot die. God cannot die unless he has a human nature to himself. That's exactly what the Son did. And Peter points out these truths to us about the perfections of Christ in verses 19 through 21. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus is a lamb 
without blemish or without spot. This refers to his sinless perfection. Again, built off the imagery of the Passover. As Israel waited for its ransom from slavery to Egypt, each family was commanded to find a lamb, to take that lamb, to kill it, take its blood, put it over the doorposts. And the blood of the lamb would cover their doorposts, that is, cover their family, and thus the angel of death, the judgment of God, would pass over them. And God said this lamb could not be one who was close to death, couldn't be one who was lame or with defects, but it had to be a perfect lamb, without blemish or spot. This symbolizes for us the type of sacrifice that would be needed for us. When Jesus shows up to begin his ministry, John the Baptist looks upon Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. To be able to take away sin, he would need to be without sin. He would need to be perfect. Otherwise, his death would only achieve pain for his own sins. But Peter tells us that Christ is that Passover lamb. Perfect, without blemish or spot. This is why Easter is built on Passover. Christ died as the Lamb of God so that his judgment would pass over us. But the perfections of Christ continue in this passage. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before God made the world, Christ was known. This communicates two things to us. This was always God's plan. Before God created anything else, he had a plan, and that plan revolved around his son going and dying for the sins of his people. Second, it establishes for us that Christ is eternal. Before God created anything else, God the Father was there, and so was the Son. And so was the Spirit, not talked about here in this passage, but there they were, and they had a plan. He is eternally God the Son. And there's a stress here in these verses that our faith then, as we believe in Christ, is in God. And that the stress is that God rose him from the dead. This being Easter Sunday, maybe we should park on that for a moment. Why do we gather on Easter morning? Why do we gather on every Sunday morning? Because on the first day of the week, Christ rose from the dead. He came back to life. If Christ is still dead, there is no hope. If Christ is still dead, there is no Easter and there is no Christianity. If Christ is still dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the Christian church has testified to this for 2,000 years. Christ is risen. Just think about this for a moment. The tomb was empty. Christ appeared to over 500 people. His disciples saw him. His disciples touched him. His disciples, almost all of them, would go around and not only preach the gospel, but they would all die saying, I've seen this risen Lord. Not one of them recanted at the face of death. Things like that don't happen. I mean, these people either had to be extremely crazy or deluded, or something changed them from the cowards that ran away from Christ to those who would die. And then there's the story of Paul, who encounters the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Before that, Paul was traveling around, locking up and killing Christians for their beliefs. And after seeing the risen Lord, 
he would go around the Roman Empire, he would be stoned, he would be chased out of towns, and he would be put on trial again and again, and eventually he would die. And he would not recant. How does one go from being the chief persecutor of the church to being the chief builder of the church who we have the most books of the New Testament written by? How does that happen? Let me give you a modern analogy. This would be like seeing Nancy Pelosi all of a sudden wearing a mega hat, getting chased around, thrown and beaten up with by rocks, and then standing in front of a firing squad and saying, yeah, I'm not taking that hat off. Those things don't happen. All right? Those things don't happen unless something dramatically shifts. And that's what we see with Paul. What does the Bible say about this resurrection? Listen to the words of Peter on the first Christian sermon after the resurrection at the day of Pentecost. He said this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Don't skip over that last part. It was not possible for him to be held by it. It is literally impossible for death to hold Christ. All throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he's going to die and that he's the one who's laying down his life. He says, no one's going to take it from me. I'm going to lay it down. And if you're reading the last hours of Christ really carefully, you see that he doesn't actually get killed, but he gives up his spirit willingly. Even his death is an act of his own will. No one can take it from him. Even on the Father, as he cries, or even on the cross, as he cries out to the Father, it's he who commends his spirit to the Father. He dictates the when of his death. Not Pilate, not the Sanhedrin, not the soldiers, not the death, and not the giving up of his body. It is not possible for death to hold him. Why? Two reasons. First, he never sinned. The wages of sin is death. If you have never sinned, then death has no claim upon you. So death cannot hold him. Second, he's God. In John chapter 11, he stands before the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and he tells his sister, I'm the resurrection and the life. I have power over death. Even as he hung upon the cross, he still held power over death. Death doesn't hold power over Jesus. He holds power over it. Because he's the king of the universe. This is to say Christ is stronger than death. The perfections of Christ are shown in the resurrection. Death literally cannot hold him because it has no claim over him. And therefore he bursts the chains of the grave. And that is what changed everything. That's what changed Peter and Paul and the apostles. That's why they could face death with an unwavering courage and faithfulness. Follow me with this. If it is not possible for death to hold Christ, and it's not, it is also not possible for death to hold those who are in Christ. Death cannot hold you. That's the story of East. That's why we celebrate, not some pagan whatever. Death cannot hold you because it cannot hold Christ and you are in Christ. That's the gospel message. 
Christ is stronger than death, and by grace through faith, you are one with Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can face death. Hold on to those truths. We live in a moral universe. You feel it in your gut every time you are angered by a wrong, and every time you commit a wrong and you feel guilty. You testify it every time you try to explain away a questionable act or thought. Every time you feel that need to be righteous and to be justified, every time you want to give that virtue signal. But note, no amount of social media posts, solidarity, good works, or political action can even put a dent in that feeling in you. It always comes back. Enter Christ, his death and his resurrection. His precious blood provides forgiveness, it provides true virtue. And it provides freedom. Why are Christians to be so bold? Because death cannot hold you. And because you're justified. You don't need to prove that you're just and righteous. You just have to point to Jesus. You don't need to prove that you stand on the right side of history. You just point to the Lord of history. So be free of your sin. Be holy in Christ. Be righteous in Him. Turn and live. That is the message of Easter. And that is why we celebrate. Let go of your burdens. Don't keep trying to prove yourself to be righteous. Let it go and give it to Christ. Be forgiven and live. Just as it was impossible for death to hold Christ, it is impossible for sin and death to hold anyone who is in him. See the Lamb of God slain for your sins. See him rise in victory and loosing the pains of death. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That is the message of Easter. And it comes by the precious blood of Christ. It is not possible for, Christ, or for death to hold Christ. Therefore, it is not possible for death to hold anyone in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for the good news of the resurrection. May you plant that deep in our hearts and in our souls that we might live with a bold surety that we are not only righteous and justified in Christ, but death has no claim upon us anymore. We praise Christ's great name this morning, and may he return soon. Amen.